Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'd learned that a lot of the best marketed brands weren't the most effective. But actually, a lot of the most effective weren't the best marketed. So I thought, why can't you kind of do both? And that £600 million brand was actually founded in a spare bedroom back in 2010. So I had a uh, distribution business, which I sort of fell out of love with, to be honest. Um, I had the idea for Grenade. I've always been really interested in the military. Military and fitness. Grenade kind of became almost like an obvious fit. You either fail or you learn. When you've got a brand, you have to do every single job. We flew a hot air balloon past Glastonbury. We drive the tank through London, we park outside Westminster. I just always did what I enjoyed. You know, I'd make it count for something. We did a £200 million deal with Mondelez. I think changes that are coming now with the brand that we have to be more careful of. But at the time, we were so fearless and naive and stupid. You do all this crazy stuff, don't you? Where does this end? Ow. Welcome to Road to Success. Big Al. Big Al. Big Al. Welcome to Road to Success. Uh, was This podcast was always supposed to be about entrepreneurs that I would view to be just like yourself. People that started from a spare bedroom or with nothing and have just turned it into the most incredible brand story, life goals, and even assets off the back of it. But many people will obviously know what you do. And it says on your top has been a huge part of your life. But Al, in your own words... Who are you and what you do? Okay, so my name's Big Al. I'm a, I'd like to say probably I'm becoming a lifelong entrepreneur now, but I've worked in the health and fitness industry for, God, 33 years, I think it is this year. I first walked into a gym when I was 15 years old and um, I was just, I was hooked. I was hooked with health and fitness. And then I've been involved in, in health and fitness in some way, shape or form ever since. I've worked in gyms. I've been a personal trainer. I've had an import distribution business and then finally now so I've got a 600 million pound brand. So, and it still, it still feels new. It still feels exciting. And that 600 million pound brand was actually founded from what I've learned in a spare bedroom 
in your previous house back in 2010? That's right, yeah, 2010. Um, so I had a, a distribution business, which I sort of fell out of love with, to be honest. Um, I had the idea for Grenade, which is twofold. I've always been really interested in the military, as you've seen looking around my house and some of the stuff that I, I like to do. And then military and fitness... Grenade kind of became almost like an obvious fit. I've always been very interested in the science behind products and making product that people get benefit from. And because I've been a distributor and I'd sold lots of different brands, mostly American-made brands, um, over like a 10-year uh, period of having this distribution business, I'd learned a lot about probably what people don't want as well and what people think they might want, and again, probably don't. And I'd, I'd learned that lots of people you come across are going to want to lose weight. So I decided to focus on on weight loss. And also through distributing a lot of the brands that I'd bought in from the US, I'd learned that a lot of the best marketed brands weren't the most effective, but actually a lot of the most effective weren't the best marketed. So I thought, why can't you kind of do both? And, and back then, the, 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 the supplement industry back then, it was like the Wild West. And there was a lot of focus on just, you know, hype, label claim, jazzy marketing, and just obtaining a consumer, let's say, uh, uh, with wild claims and at any cost. And then the product not probably doing what it as ab- working as advertised. And then that consumer sort of dropping away and never coming back again. But they, they take the money that the, they'd made and they just go and find another one. And as a distributor selling product, you know, I re- relied on repeat customers. So going to the same gym. So I used to cherry pick all the brands and only uh, sell stuff that I knew worked and was effective. And I tried myself because I've always been into my training. But I'd learned that it, it had to be easier to keep existing consumers happy than just keep on looking for new ones. So, which, like I said, was just seemed to be the model of a lot of brands at the time. So I really decided to double down on on an effective weight loss product, um, develop the product in sort of, um, uh, you know, just pre-2010. Didn't really know what to call it. And again, you know, I was a a fitness instructor, got no qualifications in terms of um, having and running a business or a brand. So just learn everything from the the get-go. And, you know, it's like when you've got a brand, you have to do every single job and, you know, you either fail or you learn. <laughs> there's kind of there's no other way of doing it really. So failed a lot, and yes, yeah, set it up with a spare, set it up from a spare bedroom, five hundred pound um, startup loan, which was a UK trade investment um, loan called Passport to Export, which is weird because you had to kind of spend the money to claim back the loan. So it was kind of it was <laughs> it wasn't like they gave you the money and they didn't want it back. Um, and then yes, yeah, and then literally just worked and worked and worked and learn and work and learn some more and trial and error you kind of get there but you mentioned that what we're going to go into now to try and understand how somebody ends up running a 600 million pound business is what did your childhood look like paint us a photo of hours a kid like i'm guessing you were quite outdoorsy quite on it yeah so it's interesting I, i mean i'd certainly i wasn't like i was always very good at kind of entertaining myself yes i'd go and play with my friends and stuff in the street but i was equally happy just focusing on something and just kind of having that that me time i was actually i've become kind of louder and more outgoing as i've I've got older i wouldn't say i was shy as a kid but my on my dad's side they were all painfully shy um you know my dad's still kind of quite shy to, to this day and just to back it up a little bit um further you know my my 
the family business that my dad had, they were heavy goods vehicle mechanics. They'd done it since the war. And all they'd done is kind of work hard and for very limited gain. They never really they'd made a living out of it, but they didn't have much to show for how hard they worked. So I got the work ethic from them. And they all worked until they died. My granddad died at work when he was 82. He went blind and just went to work because he didn't know what else to do. And he was kind of passing them tools, but he, you know, he was blind, so he couldn't see what he was handing them. And it was kind of like quite, it sort of sounds funny now. And it was probably quite funny at the time, but you look, it's really sad. And then my dad's brother, he was 15 years older. He he was like, unbel- I mean, shy, there is actually, there is, I'm not sure there's a word for um, How shy. Doesn't, yeah, shy doesn't do it justice. So he never left home. Uh, never never had a girlfriend died at 74 at home living with his mom she was 98 my nan um he never went to a shop his entire life and all he did was he just worked seven days a week in this family business the mechanics business and then just just had a stroke and came to work because he didn't know what to do um and um yeah he just sort of died at 74 and then my dad was going to go the same way so my dad was 60 at the time but um managed dad was able to uh, to retire and luckily you now dad's had sort of 20 years of retirement but my point being what did i learn from that i learned i didn't want to be a heavy goods vehicle mechanic i've got no interest in how things work you know i mean i, I, I drive i fly uh, you know I, I operate machinery all the time and you have to understand to a point how it works in terms of being an aviator but i never wanted to be a mechanic or an engineer i'm just not mechanically minded and also because they they'd never really made any money out of it i couldn't really see the, the what, what it achieved so that what i learned from there was if i was going to work and and the, you know and adopt the the barrett family work ethic i'd make it count for something and, and I think it took me a long time to realize what that would be. So I just always did what I enjoyed. You know, I went to uh, I went to the gym. I started at a gym on work experience when I was 15. Um, and then all I, our holidays, when everyone abroad said I was 17, our holidays were always on the south coast um, at a caravan in pool. And next to the, uh, the caravan park in pool is the Royal Marine Commando training base. And I used to stand, and again, interested in training, interested in fitness, interested in military, because my, my dad's family were, now they all fought in the Second World War. So I grew up with some of this stuff and I'd stand and watch them train. And I think all these, it's amazing, all these experiences from your child that you probably don't um you don't realize at the time are all shaping your they're dna all yeah, they're, yeah. All, they're all forming the, the, the character and i think it doesn't just sort of like shape or mold you it probably like carves you doesn't it into into, into what's coming so uh, i was never interested in football or cricket or rugby or sort of more traditional sports but uh, I, I just kind of fell in love with weight training and that was mostly because in the 90s the american wrestling was big i was 14 15 years old and i was skinny and then all the big action stars back then, I mean, you wouldn't remember because you're not old enough, but, you know, it was Van Damme, Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not The you Rock. Know, not, no, but, but again, that's a good example. That's a contemporary example. I was kind of too old for The Rock. But yeah, I'm wondering how many people The Rock has inspired to go to the gym. It will be millions and millions and millions. So yeah, the American wrestling was kind of, um, was interesting to me. And again, you know, like sort of the, 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 the theatre and stuff of it. So uh, yeah, it got me into the gym. And I was like 10 and a half stone ringing wet. And I was quite academic at school, but I was quite bright at school. But I found school so unbelievably boring. And I was never disruptive as in like throwing chairs disruptive. But I just found it all so easy and and pointless. And because I've got a good memory and school, I presume it hasn't changed. It's certainly now it's kind of a memory test that, you know, it was, it was bizarre. You'd sort of sit there like, you know, eight years old and I, I was, I was good at spelling. So I could spell words way above and beyond 
what kids would be able to spell, like, you know, rhinoceros and rhododendron, you know, quite words I probably couldn't spell now, to be fair. Um, but, you know, sort of six, seven years old. So, But if I saw that word once, I just, I could remember it and I could sort of understand how words were formed. And, you know, it kind of made me quite clever. But the, the teacher would tell you something, you know, they'd, so, you know, what's the capital of Peru or whatever, it's Lima. And then um, they'd say, what's the capital of Peru? And you'd go, Lima. And they go, well done. You just told me that. It's just, it, it, I didn't really get it. I just thought, is this it? <laughs> um, so I found it really boring. I, I couldn't wait to get out. And I sort of dropped out of school when I was 15. And I, I jumped on the number 11 bus and I went to the gym because that's what I was interested in. And um, I'd done work experience there when I was 14. And I'm, I went to the owner of the gym and I said, oh, I need a job. I've just sort of walked out of school. And he's like, your parents are going to kill us. And I said, I just, I'm just not going back. I just hate it. I'm not learning anything. And I think that's probably the the, the point, you know, of life. You, you're learning all the time, aren't you? And I just don't feel I learned anything at school. But ever since I left school, I haven't stopped learning. Um, but I've learned what I wanted to learn as opposed to what they wanted to teach you. It sounds like when you were younger, you'd make a decision quite quickly. Uh, my mates take the mick out of me for I'm using the words. Right. And it, like something then also yeah. then happens. And it sounds like you're quite, imp- yeah, as you said, impulsive when you were younger to make those decisions. Well, you, does that mean that you were quite self-conscious and, and you would do everything for yourself? Yeah, yeah, potentially. I wouldn't have said I was, um, I, mean, I certainly don't think I've ever been selfish. I'm probably trying to be more selfish. I'm certainly more impatient and impulsive than I've ever been. I'm going to give you an example. I was, I've, I've got a plane and, um, you know, go flying and, was going to go flying down to Cornwall probably would be a couple of years ago and the the plane is like an hour away it's at Gloucester airport and the, the drive to Gloucester is an absolute ball like if, it, if it's not going well and um I uh I was having a, a bad commute to Gloucester to get into my plane this is going to sound ridiculously <laughs> intelligent you know what's coming and um and I what did thought, you buy Al I thought oh I don't know Ben I can't remember um I remember thinking fuck it I'm buying a helicopter <laughs> um so I did so, but it was weird that in my brain, buying and importing and learning to fly a helicopter was somehow easier and quicker than just sitting in traffic like everyone else. It must be an entrepreneurial thing, but I just like the challenge. Um, I've always embraced the challenge. And I, I, like I said, I, I guess the as a kid, I always did what I wanted to do as opposed to my mates did what our other mates did they all kind of did the same thing and I've always been one of those people if everyone's going one way I just always think oh I wonder what's the other way I, I just can't help it I think it's kind of some form of Asperger's or autism or whatever where you just I don't like being told what to do and as soon as someone says don't do that or you shouldn't do that something inside me just triggers and I, I just have to go and do it and if I think of something I have to do it it's it's really dangerous. I, I actually fully understand oh, good. how so, your mind works. Well, for years I thought it was weird. Well, I am weird, but oh, other than the other than the academia or academia at school, see, I'm fucking yeah, <laughs> how ironic. Yeah. I didn't um, want to correct you there. But you corrected yourself, so that's absolutely fine. Um, I did correct myself. Other than that, there's a lot of similarities there that not only I could see just little traits in myself, um, but many other entrepreneurs that have had actually product-based we can't businesses. Sit still. I think product-based ba- yeah. business entrepreneurs are actually quite like that. I think they find the science of things quite fascinating um, and they always can't help but going after something or trying to improve something or make something better but then that kid that's walked into a gym he's just made that incision impulsive i'm just gonna, i'm going in here i don't know what i'm doing but i'm going in here and i'm doing something 
where does that take you? Because you did mention you had a business, and this is the bit that I'd just like to try and get um, clear. You had a business prior to Grenade. That's right, yeah. You had a business prior to me, but you still took out a £500 loan to start Grenade yeah, in a spare bedroom. Uh, yeah, that's it. And certainly also just to, uh, to back you up a bit more, I think, I've, I've always, like we said as well how these experiences shape you. And I know we grew up poor, so, and I was a free school meal child, so I was the only kid in my year that had free school meals. So as such, I didn't want to be the only person there with a green ticket. So I used to go home for lunch, even though I lived like a mile and a quarter away. And I'd literally walk out, walk to school in the morning, walk home at lunchtime, have 10 minutes in the house, then walk back to school then walk home again. So I walked kind of five miles a day. But then to me, it was fitness and I didn't want to sit at school with everyone else. I just wanted to go and do what I wanted to do. And I was probably, you know, there was probably a real stigma then of like being like, you know, being on free school meals. But also then if you grow up poor, that's an amazing... Lights an amazing fire under you to think, do you know what? My family work hard and actually, and, and I saw all the arguments it caused. My mum and dad were always arguing about money. So I thought, I don't want to be arguing about money or whatever. So if, if that doesn't inspire you to go and make a difference or, or change something about your life, I don't know what, what would. So if ever I've not liked something about my life, I've just come and changed it. And it's amazing how many people don't. You know, I was saying before I was 10 and a half, then I was really skinny and kind of clever. So I never got bullied, but... I was kind of, you know, I was kind of the skinny nerdy kid and I wanted to be bigger and more muscular. So I went and did something about it. I went to the gym and trained. So um, I think so many people now don't kind of take responsibility for, um, you know, their own lives and their own actions. And they wait for someone to come along and tell you what to do or change it for you. But we should be doing this ourselves because no one's going to do it for you. So what do you think is a catalyst moment that developed that open mindset when you were younger rather than ended up being the introverted, shy, closed mindset that other family members had ended up with. I, I, I think seeing the fact it probably didn't get them anywhere, that being shy didn't uh, get them anywhere. And so, you know, if there was, I started to learn how to put myself, for, put myself forward out of my comfort zone. So, um, you know, if there was a, a play or something at, at school, I'd always be like the lead in the, the the play. I'd be very nervous about it and I wouldn't really want to necessarily do it, but I thought I can't I can't be shy. Do you think I life. have to do this? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think so. And I think looking at, you know, my uncle who never went into a shop, I know it's the other extreme, but just think it didn't really you know, get him anywhere. You you want I was thinking about me, I want more out of my life than that. You know, he he had an existence, he didn't have a life. And certainly my dad, it's weird, isn't it? I've never wanted kids and I'm, you know, I'm not going to have kids. But from my dad's perspective, you know, certainly the best thing he ever did was kind of have me because all the stuff that he would have loved to have done himself and wanted to do, he's only ever done through me. I took him abroad. I've taken him flying. I've, I've you know, taken him to meet, um, you know, into certain like, very elite military bases. And I've done all the stuff with him that most people would probably do with their kids, but I've actually done it with my dad. I took him flying on Boxing Day, um, you know, and, and, and he sort of sits there quite quietly because he can't take it all in. I mean, dad had this business, this, this um, um, heavy goods vehicle mechanics business. And I think their turnover when they shut the business 20 years ago was about 80 grand a year turnover. I mean, like, you know, we've done that in the first hour of a Monday morning. Um, you know, so he can't comprehend What's going what, on? What's kind of going on, really? I've actually stopped telling him because they he, he doesn't really... I don't think he knows what to say. I know he's really proud, um, and I love telling him stuff, but, you know, I remember showing him one of my first warehouses, and, and he's like, who's is all this stuff? I was like, well, it's, it's mine, it's ours. And he'd be like, how are you going to sell all this? 
I said, I'll sell it. Well, what if you don't? Dad was always quite negative because I think his family were negative. And you'd always be looking at the, well, what if that happens? And, you know, what, just go and get a job driving a van, like, you know, go and get a proper job. And they'd always kind of play it safe. And I, and I think, bear in mind, I'm not, um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily a, a, a risk taker per se. I'd always manage the downside. When I look back, you think, Actually, I've taken quite a few risks here, but I've always backed myself. I'm fascinated. Is is that because I can draw? I can draw some similarities here. Is that relationship with your your dad? Because I I understand when you with my with my mum now. Now I don't have my dad. My mum was always quite the the negative pa- pessimist yeah. family. Lovely and again proud as you say. Yeah. But I understand why you said you stopped telling them stuff because what you think is going to get a really excited, rewarding sort of reaction actually doesn't, and it and it freaks it freaks that person out. They've got a different personality profile. But has that got better as the years have gone on? No, it's got worse. I mean, I, I remember I, I rang. We did that deal. We did a two hundred million pound deal with Mondelez uh, three years ago. Just coming up to three years ago, and I hadn't said anything to my parents about it because it was confidential anyway and and um but you know they know i'm always busy so it was just kind of for, that, for them i was just busier than usual and uh the day we did the, we finally announced the deal sky news broke the story at 8 30 in the morning and um dad watched the sky news so i thought you might have seen this <laughs> and uh, i remember ringing mom and um said oh, i've just sold the business to um i actually didn't say mondelez because she wouldn't know how mondelez were so i said i've sold the business to cadbury because they bought cadbury and she know cadbury's were so i said i've sold the business to cadbury for 200 million mom and she went oh that's nice anyway i better go i've got the cat on my lap <laughs> i was like bye then um so i don't know what i was expecting it probably wasn't that um so I don't know. They the more I've kind of said, they they do just sort of <laughs> shut things down a bit. But you know they're eighty and and they are the way they are. And you know we love them to bits. But there's obviously just now worlds apart between what they kind of grew up with and what they're used to. And I guess the things now that I'm probably used to. I mean, again, backing up to my nan. My nan was born in. Uh, she was born in 1905. She died in 2003. So we think, you know, the stuff that she saw between those years, probably the biggest changes mankind will and have ever seen, you know, man landing on yep. the moon. She remembered the Titanic sinking, two world wars. I mean, a German bomb came through her roof in the Second World War and didn't explode. So, um, you know, can you imagine? I mean, if that bomb had gone off, you know, I'm not here. Grenade doesn't exist. It's bizarre, isn't it? The things that the, the strange quirks of fate. And, you know, we said about the, the experiences that shape us. A bomb came through my nan's roof in the early 1940s. And in the late 90s, I went to pick her up for Christmas, uh, Christmas Day, because she's come around to ours for Christmas Day. And um, I had an Audi, an Audi S8. And uh, I went to pick her up and got her in the car. And again, you know, she's in her mid-90s. And um, she said, oh, this is a nice car. I didn't think, did I? I just said, oh, yeah, it's German. <laughs> and as soon as the, the words you left thought, my oh, lips, I thought, can I swear? Yeah. I thought, fuck it. So, I thought, oh, God. Um, and anyway, she's like, stop the car. Stop the car. And I tried to kind of smooth over it. She's like, stop the car. Anyway, I pulled over on the side of the road. She's trying to get out. I'm like, Nan, get back in, get back in. Not going to ruin this, German. Not going to ruin that. I'm not going to ruin this car. It was like, Nan, just get back in. It's Christmas Day. Come on, you know, we're going around for some food and whatever. No, not going anywhere. No, I'm not, I won't go in this car. They killed my budgie. 
Like, well, how did he didn't kill your budgie, Nan? <laughs> um, but it was like, and I said, look, it was, you know, 60 years ago, maybe oh, let it go. Tough subjects to it, talk it, about it, with that. It, it would have died by now anyway, Nan. <laughs> so anyway, she was, uh, but again, this is the Barrett stubbornness, isn't it? So she wouldn't go an inch further. So I have to ring Dad to come and decanter out of my car into his car he's got a Nissan Primera I don't tell her it's Japanese can you imagine <laughs> so um, but but imagine that has something that had such an impact on you that you know 56 years later when you watch these old those war veterans and they start talking about it I mean they all well up don't they you think so I think I don't know maybe nowadays we all got it too easy perhaps we were a bit more harsh experiences when you're younger actually carve you oh, they probably yeah, rather absolutely. than anything else and if you've had a war and bombs coming through your roof yeah. and your, your budgie kit Killed, yeah. then I can understand that that the, the, she probably remembers that because of how bad that that yeah, really time, was yeah of course that catalyst how moment terrifying. but so it, the bit I try and understand about all different entrepreneurs is what 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 makes them drive what makes them move and what's those little trigger points and we're starting to understand a lot of those trigger points to how you you triggered starting a business and it seems that you were quite you'd do everything for yourself where may, maybe if I just compare when i was younger i think i was always looking for a little bit like oh yeah ben you're doing a great job and almost working towards every yeah said no one ever every every bit of gratitude (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's why i've ended up here and there's nobody left Um, yeah sitting on my drive yeah driving around in your van yeah yeah yeah, bouncing around killing hitchhikers on your travels Uh, for sure um (laughs) (laughs) but do you just have a self thing where you're just like yeah well done i'm happy myself this way you smashed that, do, do you know especially what? when that deal went through. Do you know? I think that uh, we could we could do an entire podcast on this. So, firstly, I don't think I'm successful. A couple of reasons. You always compare yourself to people who've got more or done more than you, and we all do it. And that's I think that's the worst thing about social media because you don't follow people less successful than you do. You really, you kind of you follow aspirational people, which doesn't necessarily work. And I've been really fortunate to spend huge amounts of time with people that. I think are infinitely more successful than me. And I'm a mentor for Virgin Startups. So I've spent a fair bit of time um, with Richard. And if you stand on Necker Island in Richard's room and you look in, you know, what do you see? You see the other islands. But then, you know, Richard's telling me who owns the other islands. And, you know, I think Richard is infinitely successful. And, you know, and I said to him, like, you know, what does it, what's it feel like to get there? You're there. And he went, I don't know where there is. It's exactly what he said. But then his closest neighbour owns an island called Eustatia it's it's like it's Larry Page he owns Google so uh, and you know and then they're all trying to get to into space and whatever and you think where does this end so I think the trick is to be happy and content with as little as possible you know i.e. nothing and be happy and healthy and then anything on top of that is just a bonus I realized years ago when I had nothing and I lived at home and I was working for minimum wage in a gym I was super happy you know when I got my first car my first car was the best thing I, I ever obtained to give me that sort of freedom and yes I've got nicer cars now but the difference between going from one nice car to another nice car is not as monumental or life-changing as going from walking to jumping in your first car because that is your first transport so nothing beats your first car I had like a G-Reg Fiat Panda you know it was I spent more time pushing it than driving it but it's as you sort of start to become 
content and sort of happy with some of this stuff. Like you just realize that anything's a bonus and, you know, being healthy is worth a lot. So as we learned during COVID, health is wealth. And I always knew this. I've never drunk. I've never smoked. Um, and I started training to kind of initially to look good. And then because, you know, for the reasons I said, but then after that, I thought, you know what? I want kind of health and longevity here. Because again, looking at my family, I was seeing, you know, my nan really barely left her house for the last 20 years of her life. She just had an existence in her house because she had quite poor mobility. And you think, well, if I, you know, again, if I get to 98, wow. But you want quality of life at 98. You don't just want to be sort of sat there. And I saw them having knee problems and hip problems. And I think that the looking good and training for me started to turn into more about actually just... There's, there's longevity in this. I want to kind of look after myself. You've only got kind of that, you know, that, that one body. When you've worn it out, you've worn it out. So um, I think that's probably the, 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 the key potentially to success. And with success as well, my other point was going to be that you, you don't own success. It kind of, uh, it's borrowed, it's not owned. And success can leave you at any point it chooses. And inevitably it does with people. I always look at kind of, um, you know, former Olympic athletes and people have been at the very, very top of their game for probably all their career until someone else comes along. And then it's great kind of working your way up to the top and being at the top. And again, 16 year old darts player. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, you've got to, I don't know, is that sort of peaking too early? Um, you know, ma- managing expectation of your own expectations as well is is tough. So I, when I first started training, I had all these goals for weights that I would lift and things I would achieve. And as I did them all and went beyond them, yes, you reset certain goals. But I think sometimes, you know, I'm always trying to teach myself contentment and enjoyment in the little things, you know, a, a walk on a winter's day and, you know, a beautiful sunny day. And just a, there's lots and lots of things you can look around. It sounds a bit naff, doesn't it? But loads of things you can look around that are just absolutely free and we all have access to um you know quite nice the birds singing in the springtime you know sort of nice and and yeah very different to jumping into a three hundred thousand pound supercar and all this stuff's great but i think if you end up being and i know people like this if you end up being one of the people who can only do the big ticket stuff i, I just don't know where that ends i kind of feel sorry for some people like that they must be so bored just chasing, um, and the next car and just, the chase, just chasing the next thing i know people have got so many cars you know they've never even seen and they collect every car that comes out like in terms of lamborghinis and it's just they're just obtaining stuff but they're not really having the benefit of of driving them and i, I love driving i don't care if i'm driving for my you know an old defender or I'm in a new supercar. Just kind that's of why the your... first traffic jam you ate, you bought a fucking helicopter. That is true. Yeah, because that's, yeah, that's not driving, you see, is it? That's just sitting. That's different. That's different. But also, did Simon Patient. Did Simon Patient. So that has actually got a lot worse. Someone said to me once years ago, patience comes with age. Does it fuck? As you actually get older, you've got less time. So when you're a kid, you've got all the time in the world to do this stuff. So you should be more patient as a child, shouldn't you, really? And then you should sort of get less patient as you get older because you've got less time left. So I saw something the day, and I think people are going to spend 15 years scrolling through the phones. And it's like over the life. That's terrifying, that is, isn't it? 15 years and all that shit. Ugh, can't imagine anything worse. Unless you're learning. We've reached that part of the episode where I try and sell you something. But hold on, I promise it's worth your while. Back in the summer, I invested in a street food business called Gertwings. Quite simply, the best chicken and sauce I've ever tasted. We've now decided to put all those sauces in amazing looking bottles and even our chicken salt. 
Go and check out our brand new online store and try some of our sources at girtsources.com or click the link in the description of this video. If you use the code BEN10, you'll also get a discount. So hopefully you can look forward to getting saucy. So tell me the story of how that person ends up founding one of the most recognized fitness brands in the UK. Okay, so probably it was a hobby that turned into an obsession, I would say. And I think... Do these make the best businesses? I think sometimes, you know, you see a, a business or a brand and it's been craft, it's been sort of created by a team of kind of fairly corporate people from like a spin-off from a big brand and they've all sat around and it's kind of, they've gone to the lowest common denominator for everything. I've ticked every box that they can and it's kind of got no soul and they launch it and they spend hundreds of millions on it and then they kind of die because it's kind of, there's no, there's nothing authentic behind it. You see loads of those. That wasn't Grenade. <laughs> so Grenade was very much, you know, me training, like in the military, having been a PT for eight years, Everyone asking about weight loss, and I couldn't find a decent weight loss product. So I made one. And I, and, and this is probably the point earlier about, you know, how do you end up with sort of these jobs? I think entrepreneurs make their own jobs because no one will employ them. And, and actually, I know I was, I was employed in gyms and stuff, but I found it quite frustrating because I wanted to probably run it better than they did um, to a certain extent. So you end up sort of crafting something then that's, um, you know, as a, as a brand, brands are as extensions of their founders. So then you end up putting all these eccentricities and neuroses and the OCD into something you're kind of passionate about. And yeah, created this weight loss product. And I, I, all my friends are in the military. I've been working in the military for years. I was getting asked a lot of advice by senior people in the military about performance and training and nutrition and supplements so I was helping advising and I was interested in doing that and then before you know it it all kind of finds itself um you know into a into a weight loss product called grenade and you touched on it before you know it's um you know me and my wife at the time it's we're operating out of our spare bedroom you know there's no staff just the two of us we've got no budget there's no marketing budget um but we're kind of we just set out to create something special and create a product really that people would get benefit from and 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 a brand that you know i thought was kind of um something that could potentially become iconic um and we just we took we worked at it for like you know four years never had a day off never took a salary and um, we just worked and worked and worked and i think probably a, a quite an instrumental point was about two years in um we had someone ring us up actually from a competitor brand at the time and um, we were just kind of knuckling under and doing our thing and weren't really paying any attention to what anyone else is doing because I do believe if you kind of, um, if you look at the market, you'll start to look like the market. So we just had a headset and did what we thought was right. And uh, yeah, we got a phone call one day and um, he said, oh, do you know that uh, Thermodetonator, our, our fat loss product, our only product, he said, do you know that some Thermodetonator is the number one selling weight loss product in the UK? I said, no. And um, I hadn't really thought about it because we weren't trying to do that. We were just we just focused on sort of one customer and turning one customer into two and then two into four. And we just wanted people to keep coming back. And 80% of people did come back. And then all the marketing around it was stuff that we enjoyed doing, really, was kind of going out into the desert in Vegas with our athletes at the time. We're all mad on the training and training and filming it. And we created a brand, I think, that at the time it was very bodybuilding focused and everyone was kind of interested in being big and i never really i'd gone past the stage of being big at that point because i was more interested in kind of longevity so i wanted to be more lean and i think we were probably one of the first brands at the time that actually had athletes who got abs and were quite lean quite good looking sort of most blokes would have liked to have looked like that and their girlfriends would have liked them to have looked like that as opposed and you know it's really common now but 
15 years ago, it was, you didn't see there were really? the guys were kind of bigger. Well, if you think, you know, men's fitness and the bodybuilding mags, well, the bodybuilding mags kind of turned into men's fitness and flex turned into like, you know, muscle and fitness and turned into men's fitness. It turned into men's health. And it sort of, you know, health just became bigger. And we were right at the start of that and definitely helped with that. So timing, amazing. And then we just focused on baking supplements that people got benefit from. And that was it. And before you knew it, four years later, we got the businesses valued at 35 million. We did a private equity so, deal. So four years, I'm just slowing down here just to get it because we've started from spare bedroom to desert in Vegas. Yeah. So like, and we probably got there in 10 seconds. Yeah. So it's that spare bedroom, it grew very, very, very quickly once you'd created your first product there. Um, yeah, I guess so. And I suppose it, it, looking back, it looked quick. But remember, I had a distribution business in health and fitness for 20 years. So... Uh, people always look at Grenade as like, a, you know, an overnight success, but I think it was a 30-year overnight success because I'd been in the fitness industry over 20 years when we created Grenade, so I probably knew what not to do. I didn't know what I was doing, but I think I knew what not to do. I knew what, we knew what it didn't, we didn't want it to be. We didn't want it to be, you know, a, a, a bodybuilding brand. Um, and again, we just kind of went around the world and had fun. And then like where, and we looked at the market, for instance, so our first ever show, Body Power, May 2010, we're kind of launching Grenade to the world. It's been on the market for a few months and, you know, just trickling along and, you know, people kind of think it's quirky and, and, and whatever, think it's quite gimmicky because it was, but the whole industry was gimmicky. And we've got a show coming up and we think we need to be at this show because not a lot was happening. Um, and we th we thought we'd just launch it and go bonkers because it was a good product, but, you know, but it, it didn't. So we had a couple of customers and like a dis distribution customers. And the reviews that were trickling in were sort of slow, but the reviews were coming were good. Remember as well, this is kind of pre-Instagram and pre-social yeah, media, really. Facebook, so, yeah, Facebook's really around, went. but, you know, it's kind of, you, you know, it's more, you know, you need to be in shops, you need to be in stores. And, um, and you know, and, and it was more health, the sports nutrition market then was more, certainly more, specialized and focused than it is now you know you've got gnc stores well gnc stores don't exist in the uk anymore there's thousands in the us but they've declined a lot over the last 10 or 15 years the you know now you can go and buy supplements in your local supermarket you know almost your local pet well, you, you, yeah your local petrol station so you know that wasn't the case that's you, where i pick up my yeah, exactly. i literally pick up a grenade milkshake and a great audio oreo bar yeah. and my local little asda on the go we'll come back to that because that was a very very conscious decision that was not popular at the time but we'll come back to that so remind me about that point so with the show coming up we've got literally no money to spend we've got a few hundred quid so um we because I'm interested in the military, I know people who own tanks and armoured vehicles and whatever, so I ring one of them up. Any chance I can borrow a tank? Yep, how many do you want? Just the one will do. So we say a tank, it's an Abbott self-propelled gun. So for all the purists out there who always go, it's not a tank, I know it's not a tank, it's a self-propelled gun, but it's a big armoured vehicle and it's got a big gun on it. So for the lay person, they think it's a tank, right? But it's a self-propelled gun. So, and, I, and we ring up like body power and say, we can't really afford a booth this year, but we're thinking about bringing a tank in. So if we do that and we get all the trouble of bringing this in and logistically getting it there, can we kind of just blag some space that no one else wants? Because we can only really be, we can't be in the middle of the hall because we're not going to get it there. So we need to be just near a door to get this thing in. They went, yeah, you'll never get that in there, but yeah, fine. So we arranged to get it in and we drive the, the, this Abbott self-propelled gun into the NEC, billowing smoke, setting all the smoke alarms off <laughs> and stuff. And everyone's like, oh God, grenade have arrived. And we just stole the show because if you think all the other brands have all got lots of money to spend. So what do they do? 
they go and spend lots of money. And they've all got, you know, fitness girls dancing around. But you think, yep, seen it. You know, they're bringing in, they're working with race teams, they're bringing in Formula One cars. But like, you know, the dream and the joy of a Formula One car, seeing it race around a track at 200 miles an hour, not sitting stationary in, a, in an exhibition hall. So, you know, they bring these cars and stuff in and they build entire booths that you could live in that are hundreds of thousands of pounds. And we're just standing in front of an Abbott self-propelled gun. And we got about 12 quid left over, so we bought two T-shirts. Uh, tank into NEC. Yeah. Sorry, we just had a little pause because uh, of the camera. Yeah. So we've got literally no money to spend. So we spend our last 12 quid on two grenade T-shirts, like six quid each, which I think I've probably still got my original grenade T-shirt, just through to the loom ones. And we sort of stood there and we waited to see what would happen. And people were just fascinated by it. And again, it was just at the start of social media. And it was probably one of the only things in the... In the, uh, the, the not one of the only things in the, the, say, the, the show that was photo-worthy, but... Everyone took a picture of that. So everyone took a picture of our vehicle with our branding on it and put it on social media. So, because why wouldn't you, you know, back in the, in the day? And we had, uh, the, the, there was an American distributor there as well who was walking the show. He'd not he'd come into walking around the, um, the, the show for the first time in the UK. And he said, this would sell well in the US. And we're three months in and we've got interest in the US. And with high, and at the time it felt amazing. With hindsight, really, it was terrible because we, you know, we're not on our local shop down the road. So why are we thinking about the US? But at the time we were so fearless and naive and stupid. You do all this crazy stuff, don't you? And um, we ultimately ended up doing a deal with them and we ended up a year later in the US. Um, and we had the, the buyers were there of Holland and Barrett um, and you know that which was who owned the GNC stores in the UK, and then slowly but surely we did the hand-to-hand combat of just getting in, in into stores. And sort of a, you know two or three years later, with our supplements, we were kind of in all the stores that we could be in. And the business was great. We'd got what I would call a nice lifestyle brand. Everyone thought we were a lot bigger than um, than than we were. We got this amazing cult following, but you know you just touched on it a minute ago. You know we were in. Um, some of the supermarkets, but with products that were 50 or 60 pounds, it was quite an educated or expensive purchase for most people. People don't tend to walk around supermarkets and go, oh, no, I'll just spend 60 quid on something I didn't know I wanted. So we, around about 2013, 2014, I decided that we've got this brand everyone loves. It's really trusted. The sports nutrition stuff we do is brilliant. We're working with all these elite football teams and special forces and people that really know are using this stuff and it's informed sports. And it's kind of the, the you know the best supplements you can get. But you know, do we have millions of people using it? No. We need to go and find those people. So we made a conscious decision back then to put everything we learned about product and brand and retail into a, a bar and base into something that everyone could afford. Because you know we're selling protein, um, uh, protein you know tubs of protein and protein shakes and so on. But then to have something that was kind of a bit, bit more portable and more importantly cheaper. So we thought actually a lot of people were coming up to us and going, "I love your stuff, but I can't afford it." Whereas people going to petrol stations have got two or three quid to spend, you know, aside from fuel. And you know what what were they buying? You know, probably buying a pasty, a Red Bull sandwich. Greg's. So actually, yeah, Greg. <laughs> so we thought, you know what, if we can put our product into these locations, you know, with our branding and stand out, I think this will sell. Um, the the difficult point was we didn't have a protein bar and no one made a good protein bar. So, you know, we didn't invent protein bars, but we invented good ones. And again, because I grew up, um, my, the, the first gym I worked at when I was in, what, 14, 15 years old was, um, was in Sturchley, up the road from Cadbury's. I grew up with that 
sort of smell and the smell of chocolate when I was training. And I thought, well, I wonder if we could just kind of make a protein bar that tasted more like a chocolate bar as opposed to a, you know, a dog chew. Um, and it was the old mantra years ago. You know, people would say, ah, oh, well, if it's good for you, you know, it shouldn't taste nice. You know, it's not supposed to taste nice. It's good That's for you. And you, think, you think, who made that up? Someone made that up who got a product that tasted shit, made that up. So um, basically 42 attempts later at making protein bars and two years. So between sort of Easter 2013 and Easter 2015, worked on a protein bar. And someone said to them, oh, you know, so you had 42 failures. Not really. I learned 42 ways that we didn't want to make a protein bar that we wanted. So, and I said to them, like, you know, failure's a, a, a bruise, not a tattoo. You know, you either, you know, you, you fail or you, you or you learn. So um, we, uh, yeah, we, we learned how to make these bars and, Everyone was dead against it, and our board at the time were like, "No, we, you know, we've kind of invested in the sports nutrition brands, not a, not a sort of a small food brand, a protein bar brand." And I said, "Look, you know, I'd buy these bars. I think these bars are good." And the, the board's really quite split, and and then I just sort of edged it really by saying, "One of the guys said, look, you've kind of got a nose for these things, so we should kind of trust your judgment." And and I said, "Look, if these don't sell, I'll buy more." So and we ordered fifty thousand bars. So I'd have been eating them like for the next ten years. So I, I so I underwrote it. You, but you at that point you owned the company for like nearly fully. Or did uh, no, you, we would. Is just, that when just, responsibilities yeah, start creeping when, in? Yeah, that's when adults turn up and you get private equity involvement, and all of a sudden justify you have to justify decisions and spending money and whatever, and you start to become more formal and professional, which isn't a bad thing. I'm glad we did that. And again, I learned a lot. That's been the most of the of the learning because it was you know, transitioning from kind of the Wild West into, um, you know, a, a proper business. It, you know, it's got to be done delicately and, and carefully. So, and, you know, we did it through protein bars. So um, launched these protein bars in uh, 2015 and sold them in two hours. And then the next <laughs> the next uh, batch that came, again, were sort of pre-sold before they turned up, as were the next batch, as were the next batch, and we did a different flavour. And we were basically sold out until about the middle of 2017. No matter how many bars we had on order, we'd always, we just we just keep pre-selling them. And we got like 10 million on order at one point, and they were all pre-sold. Um, and, you know, it's a very, it's not an easy business in terms of you know we make a product that's got a shelf life on it and they don't get better with time and we were shipping around the world and there's nothing worse than shipping you know stuff that melts to hot countries in the summer so we've had loads of fun and games with it um but you know slowly but surely we you know well we became the number one selling protein bar in the uk really quickly but that wasn't that difficult from totally honest because it was such a small number um uk is a small island yeah exactly yes so you know we were sort of we were you know we were kind of you know big fish in a small pond i guess the the interesting thing to me then was around about 2018 when we started getting the radar of, of actually other confectionery products so we thought you know like it's one thing being the number one selling pre-workout in sports nutrition because you're just comparing yourself to sports nutrition stuff but i was thinking you know we'd already got a taste of this from our fat loss days where we're thinking okay we know we're the number one weight loss product in sports nutrition but where does that sit you know in health and beauty in the uk on amazon and we were like you know we'd, we'd be ranked number one in health and beauty or number one in food on amazon and again amazon 10 years ago isn't amazon that it is today but you'd have 60 70 000 items sat in that category and we're the best seller and now with our bars again we'll be like the number one selling item in food on any given day and coffee will be number two and there'll be like you know perhaps you're, dairy milk or you're the number one 
seller of food in any given day. Oh, in any given day, yeah. Oh, we'll always be top five. I can't remember the last time we were out of the top five. And the, and and the, the the point being, so we sort of sell boxes, we sell bars in store, and we sell uh, so, yeah yeah we sell bars in store, and we sell boxes online. Um, and that's you know Grenade.com or, or Amazon or whatever. Um, but the interesting thing to me was when I realised here that we could disrupt confectionery, and that's not what we set out to do. But when you look back and look, you know, I love chocolate. Most people love chocolate. I, I grew up with Cadbury, you know, love it. I'd sit and eat chocolate all You're day. You're Cadbury's day. machine in I've the house. Cadbury's machine in the house. Um, love it. Love the brand. Two hundred years old actually this week, Cadbury. Um, and you know, real affinity for you. Probably one of the most loved, best known British brands. And but you know, we know about training and health, you know, should you be eating it every day? No, of course not. Um, you know, it's more of a treat, but you thought, actually, I wonder if we could give people an alternative and we could just capture some of the people who are falling away from chocolate just because, you know, they're of sugar or they're diabetic or that, you know, for health reasons or, or, or whatever. Um, and we could just capture some of those people. And then when you look back, uh, so, you know, it was this is like 2018. When you look back at, say, some of the chocolate bars around, like the new kid on the block was Whisper that was like the mid-1980s. No one had launched a chocolate bar in decades, really, because I guess it's really competitive. Um, and it was just it was just ripe for someone like us to come along and just disrupt it. Because none of them had done it. No, and I think, and again, had they looked at doing this, and a few of them had tried with protein bars, but they weren't a particularly good protein bar, and they also weren't a good chocolate bar. And I believe you need to be one or the other. You can't be kind of a hybrid of both necessarily. So, you know, Mars had sort of tried it, but you ended up with a protein bar that was relatively high in sugar, but wasn't as nice as a Mars bar. So people were saying to me, what do you think? And I'd go, well, I'd just eat a Mars bar. Or I'd probably have a better protein bar. Quite I wouldn't logical. eat that. You'd think, but this is my point about where people sit round and create a product of what they think people might like. You've got to be really careful asking people what you think they want because they tell you, and most people don't know what they want. So I learned this actually with, I mean, again, I learned this through Virgin and, and when they were saying about Virgin Airlines and some of the things they ask consumers. You know, if you say to consumers, what do you want out of air travel? They want to travel everywhere quicker in first class and cheaper and a lot of these things aren't really doable for an airline so therefore they don't really learn much and you know you don't get a very useful survey but yeah sort of in 2018 we we found out we started buying this IRI data and we found out that we were the fourth best selling uh, chocolate bar in the UK and I think dairy milk might have been fifth um, we were fourth and then it was kind of like Snickers Ferrero and um, Mars maybe like I, I forget the order um, I think Snickers was number two actually and I thought, I wonder how, I wonder if we could actually do it, do it, just get this to number one. So that, from that point on, I was just obsessed with data and getting in as many places as possible. Because a lot of the places we were selling, like GNC, Holland and Barra, Amazon, they weren't measured markets. They were, we were in lots of gyms and health stores, but that data wasn't obtainable. Whereas the data from the big grocers and the petrol stations and so on um, was. And again, all around this time when we started with protein bars, you, bars, you mentioned about the, uh, the, the, the buying, you know, from, from petrol station at their peak, there were 60 GNC health stores in the UK. There were 10,000 petrol stations. So we ran out of white space for supplements everywhere that we could put grenade. We were, and it was great, but I was looking at all the places that we weren't. And again, entrepreneur logic, my drive home at the time was driving from Solihull back to Stratford. And I said to the guys, on my drive home, anywhere that sells a Mars bar, a Red Bull, I want to be able to go in and buy a grenade bar. 
that that's the mission. So Costa Coffee, tick, you know, Londis, tick, BP, tick, Shell, tick. So we just, we ticked them off. Um, and we, we had a team of probably about 12 people at the time. And we got a list of all the UK petrol stations. And we're like, right, you know, they've got 500 petrol stations. They've got <laughs> just one. Just call up the Islam yeah. brothers and be like, Excuse Oh, that's me. well, fun enough. We did. So, uh, yeah. And actually, I talked to Moshin a lot. I've got a lot of time for Moshin. Again, great entrepreneur. And also this, and of course, when he wants protein bars, what's Moshin do? Text me. Oh, send me some protein bars. <laughs> so I'm like, they're <laughs> in amazing, all of your it? stores. It is amazing, isn't but it? But the thing is, entrepreneurs like back and respect other entrepreneurs plus it's quicker for him to text me than probably go on amazon or go into one of his stores but there's just this mutual respect around entrepreneurs that again you could do a whole other podcast around which is fantastic because we just get on and on that powerful on that then you've mentioned you've been fortunate enough you're um virgin startup mentor is Mm -hmm. that that correct that's correct yeah you you spent time with richard branston so for someone branston not branston 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 make pickle You spent time with Richard. You've got to tell him. You've got to tell him, you know. You've got to tell him. Well, it's that illiterateness, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes. Prick. <laughs> when you spend time around someone like that, you are a very successful, despite the fact that you say that you're not entrepreneur, in many tens of thousands, if not millions of people's eyes, to get to where you've got to today and done what you've done with an amazing brand and a product in a sector that a lot of people love. When you spend time with someone that has another company, so let's just take someone like Richard and Virgin, that's a bigger business, turns over more, does that necess- is it just the turnover you're looking at for why you're following Richard or looking at what he's doing in his story and you mentioned they're going to space? Would you then, would you then because of the fact that there's more, think that he's someone that you want to kind of aim towards? What, what is it? Where do you get your next steps up the ladder is what I'm getting from and, and why? Is it other than turnover and size of company? Yeah, I've never been bothered about turnover. Does he think different? Yeah, I mean, he's got this amazing energy that it's amazing to be around and see it. And, and it's amazing to see what his capabilities are and aren't. And he knows exactly what they are. And again, he's been very, very good at getting people around him who are just better at doing certain things and, and working with them. And actually just, you know, he's really nice and genuinely cares about people. So you can't help but just be impressed. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Buy it and respect it. And I think what I like about that business and that brand is they've just gone past their sort of 50th year, probably getting closer to 60 years, really. And... You know, it's become so, they've really had to diversify multiple times. It's a great example of how a brand has just, they've put that, they've they built up trust and then they've applied that trust to all these different sectors and made it work. Whereas really that should have been a one trick pony. And if they hadn't diversified, well, actually Richard said to me, if we hadn't diversified years ago, we'd still have record stores. 
And I said to him, no, you wouldn't. He said, no, you're right. We wouldn't have record stores because record stores aren't really a thing anymore. So it hadn't really occurred to him that what he wouldn't have if they hadn't um, diversified. So I think that's what I admire the most. I mean, there's certain businesses now through social media. I do think it's possible to just kind of get lucky. I think you can be the right place at the right time, which I think we were the right place at the right time. Did we get lucky? No, we worked our asses off. And the harder we worked, the luckier we got. Um, were we in a point in time where people were a bit more health conscious? Yes, we couldn't really have changed that. We helped it, but we didn't create that. Um, there, are, there are certain businesses, you know, again, that... Um, would have done better 10 years ago, would do better in 10 years time. And again, through, through no fault of their own, they're in a period where, you know, they don't work these days. Um, but I think with, with Virgin, for example, they've navigated this over 50 plus years. You know, you don't, you don't trade over 50 years in business without learning a lot, having scars, getting knocked back, having failures, reinventing yourself. You know, you, you that's kind of how you learn. It's very, very you impressive. Learn yeah, certainly. Like I said, you know, I mentioned Cadbury's 200 years old this week. Um, and, you know, imagine the history and what they've they've learned there. Because also, like, you know, we, we look back, you, you many of us remember the successes. There's way more failures than successes. Um, you know, we have had loads of products that just haven't so worked. You've mentioned lots of times where you've had high moments. I mean, the, the ability to be able to think, Do you know what, I'm going to solve the problem of me being impatient in my time by buying a helicopter. Yeah. Problem solved. It's still problem solving, but it's fucking cool. A lot, a lot of the stuff that me um, and my amazing assistant Steve have seen today has been effing cool. For some, yeah. And it's nice to picture what your childhood was like to now see what you've been able to obtain um, these days. But well, you've seen me go out and buy toys that I wanted when I was a child and my parents couldn't afford so I went and bought stuff 40 years later. And but weirdly, sorry to cut in, but then one of the things I've shown, say, my mom, do you remember when I wanted this toy at like Christmas? Like, I've got one, a boxed one or whatever. And she's like, no, I don't remember that. And I was like, oh, I was really hoping you'd go, yeah. I was hoping there's more of a story than that there. And they go, yeah, I remember. And, you know, we, we couldn't have afforded it at the time. I'm ever so glad you've got one now. She's looking at this. Your mom doesn't remember anything. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting that this thing, these things stick with you and you think one day I'll do it. Like, I'm really into my shooting and I was never allowed to have an air rifle or a gun. I, was, I always loved toy guns as a kid. And, again, as soon as I was old enough, shotguns, firearms, you know, rifles. You do just like clay pigeon shooting and I go like some friends are all in the military. So love all that target shooting shooting and stuff like that you just go and do the things that you you know you can't do so, when you're younger so there's all those high moments of things that you couldn't do when you were younger in your journey as you've mentioned things aren't easy there's 42 learning lessons of protein bars that didn't work to get to the one that did what would you say has there ever been for someone that sits so confidently opposite with so much energy so much logic so much passion has there ever been a day that you get knocked back and all you, the time. And you, and you thought, fuck it, I just can't all, all do the time. this anymore. Do you know, I think, uh, again, you could do a whole podcast about this probably. Uh, the Everyone has highs and lows. And I suspect the high-performing, successful people probably have lower lows than other people you wouldn't necessarily um, expect. The reason being is, you know, simple logic, the higher the high, the, the lower the low. Um, and I think you mentioned earlier about, you know, we were chatting about, um, you know, your mom and sort of having a sense of purpose. Having a sense of purpose is absolutely critical and your sense of purpose will change. So my sense of purpose has changed 15 times probably over the last 15 years. I'm very 
obsessive. You can tell that. If I'm going to do something, I'll do it, go and do it properly or I just won't bother because I'm actually inherently quite lazy. So I'm happy just not to do anything or I'll be like, balls out, you know, I will go for this uh, until it kills me sort of thing. I don't have any grey area in the middle. And absolutely, um, you know, kind of... The, when you don't have something, yes, you want to obtain it. When you then potentially do obtain it, yet yeah, you want to potentially obtain something else because these targets move. And also you worry about not having it. So in terms of, you know, creation of wealth, for instance, it kind of does one thing. Creating wealth gives you options and lots of people probably shouldn't have those options or you have to learn how to evaluate those options. Take into account lottery winners, people who one day overnight become a multimillionaire and there are cases of people who've gone out and bought three helicopters and you think, I sort of see why they've done it, but they're bankrupt in a year because they just went and bought something they could, they might have always wanted, but buying stuff's easy, managing it and maintaining it, certainly in the case of a helicopter, you know, flying it, using it is a whole different ball game and it's really easy to waste money on things as well. So I'm really pleased i think of how i've learned along the journey and then i know the value of a fiver so i've never forgotten that because i I used to earn minimum wage so i was earning less than two pounds an hour in my late teens you know it wasn't that long ago it's like 27 years ago um so it was a poor wage then so i used to fill my car with petrol every day because i was scared if it got to half a tank or less i couldn't afford to put the fuel in so every day at the petrol station i put three quid in um so you learn these kind of tricks and then you you start to appreciate you know this stuff and you appreciate stuff more if someone just inherited money or won the lottery i sort of think it's probably almost a a, a curse i know it sounds stupid because it's you know it's amazing but I'm not sure how much they learn. You have the skills. Uh, you, you have to obtain this kind of discipline, how to deal with people. You mentioned in my house, I've had a party here. I had one party for my 40th. Hundreds and hundreds of people came. And the following day, just about everyone messaged me and said exactly the same thing. They just said, what an amazing bunch of people. And I've got people there who are billionaires. And I've got people here who like work for the council and collect rubbish. But they're all my friends. And... I've I've kept this amazing network of people over the last, you know, 30 plus years. And I'd like to think I haven't really changed. I'm still sort of the same person. But, you, you know, this this discipline and, and how you interact with people as well is kind of really powerful because I'm super conscious of ever looking crass. But then again, I also don't want to apologize for the rest of my life having worked hard, you know, because I've had people say to me, oh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy that car. I wouldn't share that car because what will the staff think? I think, well, you know, the staff see me go in really early, like first and leave last. So if my staff don't think I work hard, they're probably not the right team but you know you do kind of you have to become conscious of this stuff because you have to be respectful that people are in different situations um and and also like you know i'm i but i also don't want to spend the rest of my life worrying about what other people think okay but in that process where's been a moment that you've had to learn something really new like a mental skill quickly to get yourself out of a rut uh okay so while i think about that um, in terms of some of the lows, I'll I'll give you an example. For instance, of say, when we did that Mondelez deal, and we worked day and night for this deal for months, and I mean seven days a week, 15, 16, 18 hours a day, uh, just brutal. 
um, I actually ended up with sort of health issues in terms of the fact I, I, I damaged my own neck from spending so long sat at my desk. You wouldn't think it was possible, would you? But, you know, I had real neck problems for a year after that, after that deal. Um, and I, I've actually got pictures of the day after that deal when I, I woke up and I looked like I've been beaten up. You, you'd be like, you wouldn't think it was the same person. These are just monumentally brutal things to go to. And I think I was so obsessed with getting across the finish line. And we had a choice really between Mondelez, you know, Cadbury or Ferrero because Ferrero wanted to buy it as well. What an amazing position to be in. But we hadn't really thought about what would happen the day the deal went over the line. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, is that it? Have I just got a job now? You know, was where's my brand gone? Um, and there was a big, probably a low there at that point that week. I think just because all of a sudden the deal's done, you've got these amazing new partners and they're fantastic. You know, the best partners you could ever wish for. And it's great. And there's tons of stuff to look forward to. Like, you know, we knew we'd do our own. We've gone and done it. Um, but you just, part of you just thinks, what have I done? You feel like you've lost an arm. So, because, you know, that was my baby. So, and I'd still got shares and I still have. And I'm one of these people, if I'm, you know, as I said, I'm either all or nothing. So if I've got 1% of the shares or 100% of the shares, I'll treat it the same, you know, and, and, until I'm not there, until I'm out. So it was amazing. But, and, and, and you've got so many people saying, well done. One of the first emails, I mean, you know, Mosh and Issa, amazing job, mate. Well done, blah, blah, blah. Richard Branson, fantastic. You know, so pleased for you. Well done for creating such a valuable brand. They just go on and on and on. And all these like business icons, you know, multiple billionaires that you look up to going, you know, well done. It's so difficult to do this. You know, congratulations. And the more people that congratulate you, kind of the worse you feel because you just sort of like, or it's really I, gone I, now. Well, I think they're probably almost happier than I am. And it wasn't that I was kind of unhappy as such. It was just, I need a moment here to pause. And you kind of don't get one. And I think this was on the Monday, the Tuesday morning, the story broke. And I was having a bit of a sort of a a, a, a flat week in terms of like people congratulating us. And then uh, on the Friday, a friend of mine sent me a message um, who, James Benamore, he um, founded Amigo Loans, floated it for like one and a half billion again had free school meals as a kid really really clever guy and we all need like a bit of a mentor and someone to go should i be feeling like this is this normal or whatever he is so perceptive i hadn't heard from him all week and he was so perceptive he let all the congratulatory stuff kind of die down and he messaged me on a friday afternoon i was actually out for a walk and i was kind of a bit fed up it was the weekend and also i'd gone from then these 18 hour days i got a weekend off and i didn't know what to do with it because it just that wasn't the norm. And then you feel guilty then because you think, well, I, I should be working. And also, you know, your new partners have paid hundreds of millions of pounds and you think I should be I should be working. You find it really hard then not to switch off. And he messaged me, and I've still got the message on my phone, actually, I'll show you after this. And um and he said he said something along the lines of, you'll be getting loads of congratulations, which is right, because it's really difficult what you've done. But if you kind of feel a bit flat, that's okay too. It's normal. And I was like, Oh God, thank God for that. I thought there was something wrong with me because you just think, why am I kind of feeling down? There's more money here than I could ever spend. But that wasn't wasn't really the goal. So, um, yeah, he sent me this amazing message. And I just thought, oh, God. So, and it just, a weight was lifted. And I rang him and said, oh, God, you've got no idea how much you needed to hear that. And I, we often talk about it. He said, oh, I've been through it. You know, and it's like just that experience and that learning. And again, now I'm, I think it's why entrepreneurs stick together. 
you know, I went up to see Moshin at Asda uh, a few months back, just before Christmas, actually. And we sat in his office, you know, and he owns Asda. And we sat there on a Friday afternoon, sort of chatting about cars. And, um, and you just think, like, you know, it's bonkers. I said, you know, what are you going to do now? He said, oh, I don't know, I don't know what I want to do, really. You know, it's worth six billion. The danger is you kind of end up on this treadmill. Uh, you know, and you think, well, go and do something else. And it's not about greed or wanting more money or whatever. You get used to achieving. Do you think you're trying to mentally facilitate yourself or your brain? Try and keep your brain at a level where you yeah, stay maybe. happy. Because like I said, because I'm lazy. So the, the 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 tricky thing then is is you know this 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 discipline that you you learn over the years. Um, you know, you have to really sort of learn how to, to to manage it. And also, you know, I don't want to look back. I don't have any regrets, really. Um, and you said earlier about, like, problems, and these things are problems. I don't sort of mind problems because problems always have solutions. What you don't want is a dilemma because dilemmas are tricky, <laughs> trickier to navigate uh, a dilemma. But, look, I don't want to look back and go, oh, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that. Oh, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I get my helicopter why license? Didn't I? Because lots of people do. So now, like, I never think about it. I do it. And when I look back and, I, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing, you know, I've, I've trekked the Alps with Richard Branson and his family and chatting about business for hours and hours and hours. And I've snowmobiled in the Antarctic and, you know, I've got my mates in Special Forces and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll we go and do, you know, crazy stuff. And I've driven supercars and learned to fly a helicopter, learned to fly a plane, been in a plane crash. Um, you know, I've been doing stuff through the Everglades and going, you know, I've been to Russia and that, you know, who's going to Russia nowadays? No one's going there. Um, you know, all these uh, things, you know, I flew a helicopter down the runway at NASA when you could sort of do that. Um, and I just, I've got a, I haven't actually got a bucket list, but I didn't st- start to create a bit of a bucket list, you know, things to do before you die. And, um, you know, I'll tell you one of them, what's not going to be in there and that's sitting at a fucking desk. He's not going to be there. Because what you don't want to do is look back and go, I wish I'd not, you know, I wish I hadn't spent all those years sort of sat at that desk. So I think you get your life in chunks, don't you? And you make each one work for you and you kind of go to the next stage. Um, But I think, yeah, I'm probably terrified of standing still, as most entrepreneurs probably are. What is the difference between being a founder and a CEO that reports to a board? Okay. Um, I mean, I think founder... It's probably the DNA of the brand, I guess. I mean, founder mentality, like I said earlier, brands are always extensions of their their founders. So, you know, I guess you mean a founder in terms of having 100% of the shares and all the decision-making ability. Um, we're, weirdly as well, we've been quite fortunate in the sense that all the private equity backing that we've had, and we've done two rounds of private equity and then, and then a trade deal with Mondelez, the best, smartest thing they've kind of done is actually just let us get on with it. Um, and even with Mondelez now, yes, we're in Bourneville Place. We're in the office, but we've got our own floor. We And actually, one of their senior guys from Mondelez said to me a week ago, I don't know who does what at Grenade, but it just works. And that was it. And he's right. And it, it, it it's clever. They now know, I think, and they've said this to me as well, the best thing you can do when you partner with some of these brands is just to let them do it and just back that person and back that team and i know as well where my team um you know do things better than i do um but actually i'm good at conducting the orchestra as opposed to running around and playing all the instruments so i guess you know another point you're making is is it monumentally different you know founder you make all the decisions and then ceo report to a board but actually 
you know, there there does, and I know you've had sort of various experiences of this in your own life as well, but there does come to a point where it's quite nice to have some accountability because if I didn't have that accountability, like I say to the team, anything I do, any decision I make, I have to be able to justify to myself. I have to be able to justify it to our senior team. We call it G4, because of the foremost senior people at Grenade. And then we have to be able to justify it to Mondelez if we had to. So as long as you kind of tick those boxes, fine, do what you like. But if you didn't have some checks and balances in place, you know, I'm quite eccentric. So it's actually quite good that we probably have that bit of a framework in place to just help us make good decisions, I think. Less we, of a chance of making a decision you'd yeah, have to fix. I think so. I mean, we've and we we came up with this phrase before about we always like being disruptive, but disruptive doesn't mean being disrespectful. And, you know, we've had instances in the past with the team where stuff something's happened and actually, you know, it's kind of backfired and the way we've handled it's backfired. And it, it and it, you know, yeah, it's been disruptive, but in a disrespectful way. And and it, and again, it comes back to this learning. So every time something happens, then you learn from that and you kind of put a check and balance in place. Doesn't mean to say that you have all of your creative freedom stifled. Far from it. You know, we flew a hot air balloon past Glastonbury. Um, you know, last year we parked, the, we drive the tank through London. We park outside Westminster. Um, you know, we we still do. Um, all the stuff that we used to do I think changes that are coming now with the brand that we have to be more careful of aren't to do with kind of ownership and reporting and who our partners are because they want us to do more of the same I think now we have to just be a bit more mindful that the world is changing so as the world if the world changes and we don't that's where you can fall foul of some of this stuff so we're sensitive for instance again you've got a lot of the world in in conflict now through the whole life of grenade with bit there's always been conflict you know we, we traded all through iraq and afghanistan and um uh you know all these different conflicts around the world in the middle east now some of these are kind of close to home it doesn't change me the way i think because i still think as well actually i'm i'm actually not pro-war um, I'm anti-war. If I could avoid conflict and stop conflict and I could wave a magic wand, I'd do it tomorrow. But because it's actually no good for business for a start. But also, um, but Unless I'm, you make grenades. Yeah, but exactly. But I'm pro-military. I support what our military do. Uh, it's probably more of an American way of thinking where they're probably more supportive of their military than we are potentially of ours. Um, but I think, yeah, that some of the stuff that changes geopolitically um it has probably had a bigger impact than any sort of partner we've ever had. I don't, the, the last time I remember a, 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 one of our business partners saying not to do something was when he said, they said, don't launch protein bars, but I just did that anyway. So, um, you know, and, and look where that went. So, okay, I was vindicated. And, and then was- you got drinks, the product range has expanded, the whole shebang. And we know how involved you are with the business. And you've had your hands on it and it's been your baby. Can I, yeah, can I just say as well, actually, to flip your question, one of the reasons for getting um, sort of more professional partners and sort of private equity in trade, there was actually one reason um, that we did that back in the day. And that was because we'd got so many ideas and so entrepreneurial and we'd got so many, um, you know, rabbits that are off running in different directions. We actually hoped somebody might come in and tell us what not to do. They didn't, <laughs> but we thought that might actually help because we've had this conversation off camera before. You've got quite a few businesses running. And the, my instinct was to say, I'd, I'd pick one or two of these because you're not going to be able to run them all successfully. And you sort of defended it quite well. But, you know, sometimes it's quite nice for people to go. I'd leave that. I'd leave that. I'd just do that. And I'd focus that, you know, it's not bad to kind of get a bit more structure. 
I try and I try and look at them as a holistic holistically together. Mm. So I'm like, there's the part of my brain that enjoys digital. Yes. There's the part of my brain that enjoys building and making stuff. And that's the part of my brain that enjoys branding and marketing and all the rest of it. And I kind of get that from Gert Wings. I get the digital from Tweak. And then the building stuff is just like, what a self project for someone that loved fishing to build their own lake. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I do try and understand what time is going to be divided up. And it actually is mad that the thing that gives me the smallest return at the minute, which is in fact this, probably takes up the most time, yeah. which is mad. But you, is it the I, most enjoyment though? Yeah. Okay. By a long way, but it's also the most stress. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But you it's met, nice to meet the people though. Like we hadn't met before today. My, we've, we've obviously exchanged messages and stuff we haven't met, but it's quite nice than meeting someone for the first time and you can immediately have quite a lot in common. You said uh, a quote or touched on a quote. It's one of my favourites. I haven't touched you. Which just for the, my, just for, just my, for the benefit of the cameras. No, no one has been, no one has been touched in, the, in this interview. My, my well, dad not, used money to hasn't say, changed hands. Let's say my dad used to say, "Ben, you can, you can, all the rabbits will start to run, but you can only catch one. Yeah. Just pick a rabbit and chase it." But when you brought in the private equity, when you're doing that, do you mention you've got all these rabbits running everywhere? It does seem like you just want to chase after every single one of them a little bit. Yeah, is it like that, or is it, it structured? Yeah, and can no. you do that with private equity? Is that saying necessarily correct? Um, yeah, I mean, again, I think because what happened was all these ideas that we had were all so good, you could have almost done any of them, and I think we couldn't quite decide, and they actually. Our first private equity partners, Growth Point Capital, again, you know, very smart, operationally savvy financial partners, they weren't qualified in the fitness industry to come and say, I wouldn't do that. When they did sort of say not to do something, they told me not to do the one thing that's fundamentally made Grenade uh, a business 10 times the size. So the the point is that no one knows this stuff. You just have to have a a, a real belief in it. And if you're enjoying it, Steve Barlett always says this, I'm I'm partner with Steve in a a fund called Flight Fund, and we we chat about this stuff a lot. And, um, you know, I've I've learned a lot through chatting to Steve and sort of, uh, and and, and vice versa, but where we've had various partners in, in, in different businesses and you kind of, you know, learning along the the journey and things you do differently and whatever, it's really interesting to get sort of different people's um, perspectives on, on things and, you know, where you're learning stuff. And again, where you're having fun. I think as long as you're having fun and thoroughly enjoying it, um, you know, what's the worst that could, that could happen. Um, so now I'm sort of getting more laid back, um, I think, you know, with, with some of this stuff. And no one knows the answers to these things, you know, like like I've said. So um, I think, uh, you know, we haven't really touched on it yet, but I think the ability sometimes to realise when something's not working is quite powerful, whether it's people you've employed as well or a project that you've set off and you've put a lot of time into it so you don't want to stop doing it, but, you know, it's not really going to work or it's taking longer than you thought, it's stopping you doing the things. So, you know, it all just comes back to this discipline I keep talking about of just learning and then thinking, do you, like, do you know what? Is that the military mindset, though? Yeah, potentially, because I don't think you'd want to commit to a bad military operation. I actually, um, and if it's not going well, you need to le- learn when to stop and retreat. You don't just keep pushing blindly forward but people do with business so i quite like the military analogies um and you know and having friends in the military because it and keeps me tanks. grounded and yeah pine tanks but it does keep me grounded but you just think there actually you know what what would be the most efficient way of doing this and you do think of it like a more of a you know military operation for sure for a bit of fun has there been a moment because we've seen as you mentioned grenades marketing is disruptive chaos almost some would say yeah there's a method to the mayhem. there's a method to the mayhem 
Have you ever walked into your board or walked in a group and said, right, I've had this idea, but just bear with me. <laughs> like, where do these ideas get born from? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is, uh, it just comes down to just this inherent ability I've got as well of just not not liking being told what to do and just doing things that you shouldn't really do, but you can probably get away with. I mean, the first time we drove the armoured vehicle through London, um, I just thought, does it say anywhere? Because when we sort of first floated the idea, the obvious question you'll get back when you chat to sensible people at Grenade, and yes, there are some, they just go, well, hadn't been able to get permission. Well, off who? Because they'll just say no. If you go to the council and go, can I drive a tank for London? They're just going to say no. So we learned, again, you always want forgiveness, not permission. Do things with a smile on your face and you can actually get away with quite a lot, provided you conduct yourself properly or high-vis. Or, yeah, leaking oil underneath Marble Arch or whatever. Um, But, you know, taking a military vehicle through London, it was congestion charge exempt. It was tax exempt. It was like classic military insurance that was like 50 quid a year. It was like, there was no, it was exempt from all the rules because someone at some point probably thought, no one will do this. So there's probably a rule for it now because we've probably meant they've had to create one. Um, but it, yeah, I, um, I've, I've got a, we've got a few things coming up that I can't talk about because it'll, it'll, it'll ruin the surprise. But um, I, I think if you can kind of wow and delight people and kind of do it sort of cheeky. You'll get away with that. Yeah, I mean, for instance, when there was the whole... Um, uh, M&S, Aldi, uh, Colin the Caterpillar, so the trademarking issue that kind of made the news because it got collared, got sued. They, um, M&S sued Aldi for sort of allegedly copying them, I should say, and whatever. So we just did like a spoof Colin the Carb Killer and we just took one of our carb killers and put a Colin in the front of it and we just put that out there because it was because you're so see, so you got two big brands arguing over a cake, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> And we just thought, so we kind of always liked to be somewhere we'll just take the piss. So we just said, you know, should we? And we just did that. Oh, millions and millions and millions of views. Um, and then, like, you know, just stupid stuff we've done. I've ended up on Lad Bible and whatever. And we've had some, we've had some great PR on there. But I think with Grenade, fundamentally, because we're having fun and we enjoy it, it, there's something quite nice living vicariously through people who are having fun and enjoying it. And I think people come to see us as kind of like, you know, the cheeky underdog who've now got this monumental partner that own Oreo. Um, and now like we've joined forces. So we've got this enormous purchasing power, manufacturing power, global distribution power, but they're still letting us be us, which is kind of quite nice, really. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing some different stuff for, with, with the team. Well, we've got a guy that's going to going to be doing Everest this year. And you're thinking in, in isolation, that's probably not necessarily that exciting for a brand. But I've got this idea, whereas as he's climbing Everest, we're doing it with him. So I basically want to go to Statmill, put it in HQ. And if he's climbing, we're climbing. So basically like anything he's wearing, we're wearing. And then basically as, as he's going up there and then we can't simulate the cold, but can simulate the altitude. So we'll get an altitude mask on some of the team. And like, you know, my finance, they don't know this yet, by the way, but you know, my finance team, by the way, are going to be trekking up Everest in terms of the number of steps and stuff. Um, Cause I think it's kind of makes it a bit more relatable and just makes it more interesting. Doesn't it? To well kind of get involved. And is um, that your brainchild? Yeah. Cause it, we were just chatting about it last week. And I just, I'm just one of these people. I can't just sit and like watch people footballer I just can't watch stuff I can't like motor racing I couldn't sit and watch too boring if you're there taking part in the action exactly but like I said I don't really watch much TV I just can't really watch stuff I can't sit still I think you've I got like ADHD involved. oh definitely but I think most most people probably have nowadays I think most entrepreneurs oh definitely that yeah. I meet when did you go I once touched on it especially as the fact that as I mentioned own a digital agency I love digital I love marketing 
when did you make the decision to go online? We'll kind of keep it brief, but oh, and, and what was that a major turning point for the business it, or it a new was because that's actually if if my passion and focus and um uh, you know love for business and brands and entrepreneurialism is my superpower, then uh, yeah, the digital for me is kind of my kryptonite. Um, I was kind of quite anti-digital for quite a long time, so I was actually. Although saying that, we were one of the first people to rec- recognize Amazon in the UK and partnering with Amazon. And, but actually, I was only, I only became an Amazon consumer probably about 10 years ago because I quite like buying things in stores and supporting stores. Um, and, uh, you, you know, infrastructure's got better, deliveries have got better and stuff, certainly with digital. But, yeah, Grenade was never set up as a digital brand. It was actually quite the opposite. We set up to be a product that was sold in store with some assistance originally because it was this, you know, £60 weight loss product. Um and as digital's become more prevalent, and I guess as you know, stores have struggled much. I think the the frustration around working with retail. Retail's amazing; it's really powerful, and we're on the shelf of just about every store in the UK. Probably two hundred thousand plus distribution points in the UK alone, and counting. So you know, if 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 there's a shelf, we'll be on it. Um, but I think the frustration with retail is it's quite slow. So they'll have a range review once every year, maybe twice a year. And you could have the very, very, very best product imaginable that, you know, is a unicorn of products that consumers are going to love. And it's amazing margin for you and it's amazing margin for the consumer. But you've probably got a six month wait until the range, range review. And you just sat there and sat there and sat there. The nice thing now is, you know, since we've got a product ready, you know, it, it, it's on it's on dot com um, or it's on Amazon. It's available to the masses kind of quite quite quickly. Um, and when we've learned with digital for us, we've we've, we've got a new guy uh, that started. So he's been about eighteen months now, two years. Cameron, uh, head of digital, is superb. Took us quite a long time probably to find him. And Grenade was an unusual proposition online because we're already in all the stores. So, but like I said before sell bars in store, sell boxes online. And again, we fish it, we've learned how to fish in different pools before. If you just keep casting the same message out to everybody, um, you just keep sort of reaching the same people, but you're probably just stealing people who are buying from you anyway, or people that were going into Tesco's. Now, you know, you're just stealing them and they're buying it online. We found a way of doing it where we we actually keep everyone. I mean, for instance, this year, Grenade.com is now the same size as Amazon, which... Um, you know, probably three or four years ago, we were like a tenth of the size of Amazon. And just for some people that get confused then in terms of revenue of their Yeah, product. sorry, yeah, not a size yeah. of Amazon in terms of yeah, revenue, but I mean, yeah. Next so, week, Al goes but, to know, space. Yeah, but, you know, we'll sell tens of million, millions on Amazon in the UK and we'll sell tens of millions on, on, on Grenade.com. But before we used to sell tens of millions on Amazon and nothing on Grenade.com. Okay. But this year we've grown Amazon by 30%. So they're over the moon. And we've managed to find people who aren't shopping on Amazon and we service them as well, who probably aren't the people that go into an Asda or a Tesco or a Costa. And you actually just people want to buy this stuff where it's right for them. And remember, if you're hungry. In the gym. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we sell lots of gyms. And again, if you're hungry and in a store, if we're not there, you're buying something else. You're not going to go, well, I really want a grenade bar now, so I'll just go online because the fastest you're going to get it is probably the next day. So, you know, being in stores is critically important. Being online is critically important. And again, we've, like I said, we've just learned really how to fish in, in different pools. And it's quite tricky because where we've got all these different retailers, they all have to coexist and a lot of them actually dislike each other. So we want to build everyone's business and our own, but without cannibalizing one another. It's really difficult to do. What, what happens when you've hit every shelf? 
Uh, yeah, I just. Where do you go? You have we... multiple locations in store, and again, I, I, I'm already thinking about this because I talked to like the guys at Red Bull and whatever, and I had a chat with one of the guys at Red Bull last year, and he said there was still, you know, tens of thousands of locations in store that they didn't have, and they've been trading for like forty years. So, wow. it, and again, you think, you know, let's say then, okay, you you get in every shelf, or what about every place in the UK that employs more than fifty people? You know, are you there? Are you there with a the fridge? you know, in there. So are you in every gym? And again, are you on every shelf in France and Germany and the Netherlands and Scandinavia? So, so do you and- think that that process of getting to that point will outlive your reign at Grenade? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is actually good because a brand is never finished. And I think some of the, which is actually why I like aviation, because you can always get better at it. I think if you're one of these people who likes getting stuff done and then you go and do it and tick a box and move on. You look for something else. So the nice thing about a brand and Zuckerberg said this about Facebook, didn't he? It's never going to be finished. It always just evolves. So I quite like having this evolving target and again, making this a bigger brand around the world. And, you know, I love going to Canada and the US and seeing us on shelf there because I get a real buzz from that. Do you think that by not having kids, you've got further in your career than you would have done with? I have definitely. I've got no basis for that because I know people have got eight children and built monstrous businesses. Um, How they've done it, I I don't know, to be honest. Every waking moment of my life has been spent on grenades. So if I'd had, um, you know, a family, I either wouldn't have seen them or I'd have, I don't know, maybe I'd have spent quality time with my family and it would have made my time at work potentially more effective. You know, I guess we'll never know. know. Um, But yeah, I, I, I can't imagine doing it. Um, because it has enabled me to be quite selfish in terms of not taking days off, not taking a salary. And certainly in the early days at Grenade, and still now really, you know, we were horrible to compete with for our competitors because if we were awake, we were working. Um, and, you know, no one, people will say to us, what's the one thing that you did? What's the one thing you did at Grenade? In the first five years, name one, th- there was one thing, name one thing that you did that made the big difference. So the one thing we did was everything we thought of we did. So basically, if there was a show, we were at it with a tank. If there was a retailer to be met, we were there first in the queue. If there were samples to be made and given out, we were making samples and they were better than everyone else's samples. You know, if we did clothing, it was better than everyone else's. Um, If there was a relationship to be had, we'd have the best relationship. So we just did. We left no stone unturned because I said that point about regret. You know, if Grenade had gone belly up, and there were plenty of times it could easily had, uh, could have done that, we never, we always said we didn't want to ever look back and just go, oh, I wish we'd done that. You know, I, I know there are so many businesses nowadays um, that are, are failed or failing, and the owners can look themselves in the mirror and go they, and say they did everything they could to save that business. I can guarantee it. Financially, are you now at a place where you don't fear security? You've got more security than you you would fear about having because i think one of the one of the driving factors for a lot of entrepreneurs when it comes financially is i i know this from myself that we can't help chasing those rabbits and then suddenly mm. a pot becomes so depleted as i've learned yeah in my life and now you're like right i really hope it all comes back now everything that i've done but are you at that point is there a point that you get to or do you just end up buying more stuff is my point do you, do you understand what i'm getting at i think so 
are you saying that like I'm kind of I'm so secure with this stuff that it almost can't fail? But like, are you worry you worry you'll end up with you? Do you, you still have that same fear that you wake up and think oh, I have to do this right because it could all go tits I, up? I don't necessarily have a fire under me that I used to have, and I think the fear of failure and having a fire under you and like if grenade didn't work now, then no, I don't lose my house. If grenade didn't work ten years ago, I'd probably lost my house. Um, it's nice having that fire under you. Um, so no, but it doesn't mean to say that you don't take risks. It does come back to that sense of purpose. My sense of purpose has never really been financial or making money. Um, it's been about having fun and making a difference and doing what I'm enjoying at the time. So I think, yeah, you know, do I leap out of bed now and just think, oh, you know, we, we want to put another sort of 20 million on the bottom line or top line of grenade. No, but I never did. And actually, but I'll leap out of bed now and think, I want to make Oreo the number one selling snack in the world, let's say. Off we go. Yeah. So would th- could that make you then the wealthiest person in the world I- indirectly? Yeah, maybe. But that's not the, the, the driving yeah, factor. Yeah, the wealth isn't the driving factor for me. It probably wouldn't be in my top five, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, actually, I th- I think we've seen, we, me and my partner have seen a lot today, but you're actually quite like, I can, and I think this is connected to the military side of you as well, the, the way that you operate. You you don't have a lot of time for anything you don't need. It's like even, yeah. even with your cars, you can have 30, 40, 50, 60 car collection quite easily, happily on site. You're like, well, I had a purple man name, but I didn't really use it. So I just got rid of it and I got a buggy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it's like, okay, yeah, that does, that totally makes sense. But it's like, do, do, you, do you not like waste? Yeah, I hate waste. I hate wasting money. And I always say to the team, spending money's fine, wasting money's not. Yeah, I, you're right. I don't like waste. I, this You have to just justify these things. And, you know, I've got some nice cars, but I always try and make sure I drive them. Obviously, there are people that buy these dry cars and just mothball them for long-term investments, which, you know, I get it, I completely get it, but... I just think, what a shame. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be sort of, you know, to be driving Spank that. your Urus about. <laughs> no, well, weirdly, I'd, it would never have been... No, I mean, I don't really drive quick. There's something... The best thing about driving a supercar, I think, is driving it around slowly. I, you know, I've touched wood, haven't got any points. Um... I um I yeah, heavily I, disagree with yeah, that statement. I, yeah, I've but I've I've not really been interested in in sort of um in kind of like thraping cars. I don't like to hear the sound of an engine struggle or whatever. But also because I fly, I I'm you. I've got we've got this. There's a, a theory in aviation that if you look after it, it will look after you. And again, if you blow your car up. There's probably, you know, not a lot going to happen necessarily. Depends where you are and where it blows up. But you blow your helicopter up by mishandling the engine. You're in all sorts of shit. So um, I'm always quite kind to things mechanically. And I think I get that from my dad because he was a mechanic. And he'd always teach you to change the oil and check the oil. And, and you just and look after stuff. And I think we were touching on this earlier. Most stuff's made that badly nowadays <laughs> that I think you have to look after it because it's, you know, it's dying to go wrong. Um so uh, yeah, I've never been one for like thraping cars around or speeding or stuff like that. I don't really, I don't really get that much thrill from speed. I've done track days and stuff like that. And I just find it a bit boring after a while. I'd rather go somewhere. I'd rather go on a journey or go somewhere than just drive around in circles. You get all your kicks from a sense of accomplishment yeah, at yeah. the end, don't you? That's not to say all my mates have gone into like racing in a big way, entrepreneurs. And again, that's probably you know obviously having the money to do it, but they've got a different sense of risk and whatever as well. They get huge amounts of enjoyment from it. That's not to say that I won't wake up in five years' time and I've completely changed my mind. I mean, like, you know, two or three years ago, 
um, someone said to me, why don't you get a helicopter? So not interested, can't fly one. And about a month later, I thought, oh, I might buy a helicopter. And I just completely changed my mind on it. Same with boats. I never wanted a boat until I bought two boats. Your mindset on this stuff is, um, I take it, I've actually... It's quite erratic. I've interviewed an Olympian called Derek Redmond. Hmm. And when I was sat with Derek, once he'd done something, he had to do something totally different and then just smash it and be like first at it. Yeah. So he's just like, right, I did I did hurdles, did running. I was like, yeah, well, I mean, right, I can't do boxing. Or I'll learn, I'll learn how to d- ride a, a motorbike and, yeah. and, and be a superbike champ. And you're just like, you talk to him and he's just like, wow, that's just yeah. such monumental change that most listeners and most viewers can't even comprehend that level of change in somebody's life. But it just- You're only here once. You're only here once. So you said about not liking waste. I don't like wasting days as well. It's just, apart from doing this, obviously, um, it's just, <laughs> I had to get that one in there. Um, it's just criminal. It is criminal though, isn't it? Because if you think, you know- but That's why we come to you. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't have got where I got with the podcast. Yeah. To the point that we're ahead of a lot of other podcasts for the same time period. If I didn't think, well, these guys, they don't like wasting their time. That's that's the mo- the main thing is wasting time. So if I can just pull up outside mm. their front door, have a cup of tea and crack on for an hour, it's going to give me a way greater chance yeah. of interviewing. No, Ow. it's... it's, it's saying, it's, do you want to come and sit in my shed in my garden? Yeah, but it's, it's just smart though as well. I mean, I get asked to do a lot of... Uh, podcasts and also public speaking and stuff in London um, and you know London's a pain for me it's kind of three hours each way if, if you're lucky it's really hit and miss of the traffic it should be two hours but it could be five and I haven't got the time just to sort of sit there and I don't I love London when I'm there and I'm in it but I don't like the getting in and out of it and I'll, I'll go down to London perhaps you know a couple of times a year to see Stevie or come here um, but yeah I, I I kind of like being in the country and I kind of get more done so it's, it's a productivity thing at the moment um, in terms of like you know going and travelling and whatever what is on a final thought the last thing that you would like to do as a real big sense of accomplishment you've sold huge shares in your business you've hit many targets you've set yourself in front and you have achieved loads of you last smile yeah because i know because i know what it is i'll do it all again would you i'll do it again yeah i'll do it again um and and i think that's the thing with it with on you know entrepreneurs as well it's we like the journey so um i do it again and i genuinely believe that what i'm going to be truly proudest of like, you know, I've got no desire to be famous whatsoever. I can't imagine anything worse. But if we said for a minute, what would make Al Barrett famous, for instance? I don't think I've thought of it yet. Um, so I, I find that quite exciting that I think one day I might just wake up. And, you know, I'm kind of, I'm trying to thought works now. I might just wake up and go, I know, I'll just do this. Um, and I think that's kind of quite powerful. Because otherwise you think, I don't want to slip, sit and go, uh you know, I've done it all. I've done that and I've ticked that box. So, um, yeah, I think there's probably still something yet to come, um, you know, and, 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 and I don't know exactly what that will, will be, but I think um, I think that's kind of the exciting thing. I like not knowing. A lot of people, you know, I know as well, like a job and a sense of security and the safety net under them and they want to know, you know, where they're going to be for the next 30, 40, 50 years or whatever and their family. And I can't imagine anything worse than just having that level of sort of stability almost. Yeah, I just, it's never, never been me. Because again, when I worked in a gym years ago, when Rover was kind of still going, a lot of the people there were like job for life. And it was my dad's generation. Oh, you got a job for life. 
Um, and I know that's changing now, rightly so. But can you imagine just starting a job and doing it for 60 years and then that's that's it? I mean, and just not trying different things. I mean, it's just... It's all mapped I, out for you. Yeah, I, I would absolutely hate You're that. already defined by the end. Yeah, but you'd, you'd got... Yeah, exactly. And again, they give you a clock or whatever. You spent 60 years watching the clock. What does they give you, a fucking clock? Um, you know, so... Yeah, I quite like the sort of the the set the sense of freedom and the sense of freedom I'm probably getting now. It's taken thirty years of work of not having much freedom because I've been working a lot to try and you know obtain that freedom so you can get some financial freedom to do some of the things that you want to do. But like I said to you earlier today, I think we're all we've got a responsibility to share what we know, have learned, help others, help people on their journey, um, you know, help them make the most out of their lives. And I think if we know stuff, we should share it and just not not bottle it up because I've probably forgotten more about business failure than most people might ever learn. And as much as I can, I try and mentor people and give them quick answers to things. It's difficult because I'm so busy. Um, but we've probably got a, a medium of finding a way of helping more people uh, in a, in a, on a bigger scale in the next sort of 12 months, potentially. We can't talk too much about it because I'm under NDA, but um, there's probably a bigger way of, of, of helping more people, which, again, I'll probably find really fulfilling and enjoyable. Um so yeah, I quite like the idea of, uh, of 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 doing that and genuinely helping people. And the world is becoming such a shit place as well. You know, there's so much bloody misery in that. It, you know, isn't that we you know we all need to try and make, find a way of making things a bit better. What has been two things that stand out for you in your life that you were really proud of? Okay, not so not necessarily proud. Two things that stand out. I mean, can probably be thirty years apart. So. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a plane crash. That was the late 90s. I was working at the gym and a friend of mine who was training at the gym was building his hours up. He passed his private pilot's license and he was building his hours up to go commercial. And it's quite expensive. So he said, if ever you want to fly anywhere, um, if you pay for like, I'll, you know, he'll pay for a seat and then I pay for the other sort of three seats on the plane. He'd take me flying. So I thought, what could possibly go wrong? Quite a lot, it turns out. So, uh, yeah, my girlfriend at the time, her granddad lived in Cornwall, so we decided we'd fly to Bodmin to see him, to surprise him. And we basically flew a Cessna from Coventry day before Christmas Eve um, in, I don't know, 98, I think it's, yeah, about 97, 98, and uh, flew the Cessna all the way down to Cornwall, landed no problems, and... Um, uh, basically refueled and, and came back and just through no fault of his own we ran out of fuel um, over a potato field in Aston Cantlow so yeah crashed so the, the headline on the uh, the evening mail um, is uh, of Christmas Eve in like 1998 was four survive plane crash nightmare which was me my friend John my girlfriend and uh, my sister at the time and uh, yeah we ended up in a potato field with, with a faulty plane actually so that's and one. you all walked away. Yeah, we walked away. Yeah, which again, I mean, it was quite lucky because most people probably wouldn't have done. And there was a real strange. There were lots of strange coincidences actually that day. The headwind was. Uh, well, we were going to have a tailwind, and it turned into a headwind. So the wind, the weather changed. The there was a slight fault with the plane, so it was kind of burning a bit more fuel than than he'd planned for. Um, there was a dodgy fuel gauge, so there were there were two gauges thing on that particular plane, and one of them was still showing half full. Um, so they call it the Swiss cheese model. It's just these things where all these these um, coincidences line up, and the sort of the plane flies to the hole and it holes, and it's kind of called Swiss cheese. Um, but uh, um, uh, yeah, one one of the the biggest coincidences was though the uh, the field he was aiming for he he missed. We skimmed over a barbed wire. 
fence which again if he'd been two feet lower then we'd have all been um yeah we'll, we'll had a haircut for sure and um yeah the 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 field that we he was aiming for that we couldn't have seen from the air actually wasn't as um smooth as, as where we landed it had actually been plowed the field we landed on it was the ground was frozen it hadn't been plowed so it was kind of it was a um a pretty uh, we're fortunate uh, thing to, to land on because it was almost not as good as a runway but it wasn't like landing on you know bumpy grass or uneven ground and the weird coincidence was we spoke to the farmer that owned the field and f- he'd farmed that field for over 30 years and every single year at that on by that date he plowed that field and for that particular year he didn't and i remember saying to him why didn't you do it this year and he said he sort of thought about it and he went I don't know, I just didn't. There was no reason whatsoever. And you think, that was bizarre. And then the second thing that was weird uh, was there was a little, there was a cottage we could see in the distance and we walked to this cottage and it was Heart of England Balloons. It was a hot air ballooning company which did Virgin Balloons. <laughs> Is that <laughs> how you ended up in Glastonbury? Uh, no, that was, no, that was ended up being sort of years later, but then we ended up making a hot air balloon and then sort of such, and I, and I thought it would be quite cool to make Richard Branson, so I did. Um, yeah, so that sticks out as something that most people haven't done. And again, from that, I thought back then, when you're in a plane that's crashing, basically, because the engine's going like that, it's pretty terrifying. Pretty good, though. And you can't fly. It was good, wasn't it? And you can't fly. You think, oh, I'd love to be able to fly one of these. I mean, I wouldn't, there's no one done it better than John that he was super. I can see in your eyes how happy you were with that noise as well. Yeah, I was good. Yeah, I was good. I've done it before. Uh, Not on my first podcast. So, um, but after that, when I could and I got the money and the time, I went to learn to fly just to tick a box. And I learned to fly in 2001 and passed in the minimum number of hours and then didn't fly again for years because I just ticked the box and the thing, okay, done it now, ticked it, moved forward. And I actually revalidated my license probably about 16, 17 years later and bought a plane. Uh, when I'd got so you know when circumstances changed and I'd got more of a useful one so the plain thing sticks out the second thing probably um, of just in the throes of being made an honorary colonel um, in the Royal Artillery um, I'm the second civilian I'll be the second civilian actually that's um, ever um, got this so for me it's like sort of it's better than a knighthood because it's rarer and I, I love the military so I'm really um, pleased about about doing that and it's such an unusual um path that's been trodden here it's had to be signed off by sort of the like a major in the royal artillery um like the the um the the, the uh, brigade commander like two it doesn't normally general. happen yeah no it's it's a really they always have to figure it out as they yeah they're working out how to do it but it's got to be signed off by the head of the british army and then the grant chaps the defense secretary's got to sign it off and finally the king has to sign it off as well so i'll hopefully get a nice little um signed um thing whatever from king charles who again i met a few weeks ago for something else ironically because we were chatting about this um and i saw my name's going to come across your desk in a few weeks and an honorary colonel and um and he was like oh who did you serve with us oh i haven't so for a civilian to get this it's kind of unheard of but they want someone inspirational more relatable for the guys and yeah they want me to fly down to salisbury plane and land in the danger area in the helicopter and land beyond the gun line we can fire 105 millimeter live uh, light guns with live ammunition and wants me to pin medals on soldiers yes please amazing so um yeah that's that but who'd have thought then and you know an unqual because i've got no qualifications in being a fitness instructor who'd have thought a fitness instructor from birmingham could kind of go from you know from where i was to where i am and then 
that's why I say I don't know what the next thing will be because who knows where it could be. But you know, I'm constantly when that that the, the honorary colonel thing came completely out of um, left field just from working with military charity discreetly for for years, um, and then you know, hopefully it's probably paid off. So yeah, there's two things for you. Big Al, thank you for coming on Road to Success. You were absolutely fantastic today. And- Please hit that like button and the subscribe button to see more guests that will hopefully inspire you just like Al did. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.